Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is not a diving podcast, but scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're bearing up okay. I think this past 10 days or so has been one of the most tricky, I think, globally since the early 2000s, probably. I think it's been really quite shocking and really quite um, eye-opening. The lack of cohesion, I think, in the response and just how divisive the events have been really so I'm not going to bore you with my views on it I don't think the world needs any more hot takes on this subject but I just hope you're doing okay I hope it's not keeping you down too much and you're able to keep a bit of perspective at a time which is yeah as I said just just really difficult anyway let's focus on the task at hand Talking about music, music's supposed to be positive and fun and uplifting, right? So that's what we're going to try and achieve here. Thank you for your feedback to last week's show with Martin. I know a lot of you enjoyed that one. And uh, it was a conversation I really enjoyed having. So I've said many times that doing this every week gives me the opportunity to have conversations with people, long conversations which are really illuminating, even with people who I know pretty well, and I do know Martin pretty well, but being able to sit down with him for two hours and chew the cud, as it were, is not something that you really get to do very often, even with your closest friends. So yeah, that was a good one. This week's guest, I didn't know at all before we got on the phone and chatted. So that's a slightly different dynamic, of course, but he was someone that I've wanted to have on for a long while. He's someone who's a really, really interesting musician, someone whose contribution is unique, really, I think, in the last 20 years in terms of what he's achieved with his projects. And there are lots of them. And there are really wide-ranging 
Group of Projects 2. So, of course, it's Matthew Herbert. He is extremely prolific with his output. Nearly 40 albums, I think is how he described it during the conversation. So there's just a lot of stuff to dig into in terms of his catalogue. And it's, as I said, very varied and ranges from the really quite impenetrable to the really quite accessible. So he's a very interesting person, very interesting musician. And it's great to have him on. We talk about issues, mostly issues, as opposed to his general narrative, although we do, of course, touch on various examples from his journey, as well as the more sort of esoteric stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a good episode, which hopefully is going to divert your attention from <laughs> other things <laughs> for a couple of hours. Okay, before we get started, just a reminder that you can support the show either by subscribing on Patreon or in the form of a one-off donation. You can go to scubaofficial.io slash support to do that, either with PayPal or a credit card. Or like I said, you can subscribe to the Patreon. There are two levels of the Patreon offering, one of which is £3.50 a month and the other which is £8.50. The more expensive one gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels. And the cheap one gets you a bunch of bonus podcasts. So it's good value all round. And we would be extremely grateful if you found it in the kindness of your heart to do that. That would be extremely nice of you. If you can't, if you don't want to, that's also cool. Follow the show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Leave a review. Hit the five-star button on the rating scale. That would also be nice of you. doesn't take a huge amount of effort. Following is something that I haven't been telling people to do enough. So please do hit the follow button, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. I know you're probably either on Apple or Spotify. So yeah, that'd be nice. There's also a Spotify playlist you can follow, which contains all the music that we talk about, or much of it anyway, and all the episodes of the show. That's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And you can also join us in the Discord. There's a Hot Flush Discord server, which contains podcast-related channels. So hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the invite to get into that Discord server. So yeah, do that. Do that. Um, without further delay, here is Matthew Herbert. Matthew Herbert, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You mentioned just now that you were feeding the pigs. I take it you meant that literally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, the, the world's such a mess these days. It could it could mean anything, couldn't it? Um I Good. yeah, I, I, I'm sort of a stunt farmer. Like I'm not really a farmer, but I have it's a bit of an arc, so I have like two two sheep, two pigs, some peacocks, some guinea fowl, some chickens, a couple of turkeys, um some bees, that kind of thing. And um right. just sort of in the mornings just go around and check everybody's alive and the foxes haven't eaten them and give them some food and things um but it's good they don't know who nigel farage is and it's like a really it's a really great kind of tonic to the that kind of poison you know that's so much shit going on in the world and actually just to have just to spend some time with like some other living things that don't know don't know about gb news is really is yeah it's health healthy yeah that is definitely a advantage i would say for a living organism <laughs> not to have that knowledge <laughs> so where, whereabouts do you live then um i am on a farm 
uh, between Whitstable and Margate, sort of East Kent um, on the marshes, or quite okay. Brexity around here. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. And uh, but you know, it's a really it's interesting because it's you know the heart of really at the or sort of part of the heart of Brexit is this is this kind of tension between rural life and urban life, you know, like a lot of the urban mm. centres voted to remain and lots of the sort of more rural communities or um voted to leave. And I you can sort of see that not just in Brexit, but in the sort of wider relationship between I don't know, things like news and how people get their news and exposure to different cultures and ideas and things like that. So it's quite a kind of it can be challenging at times, but I like I like being challenged and I like finding ways to talk about politics with and sort of the world with neighbours that isn't confrontational, that isn't um that isn't so divisive as as the way it's presented on the on social media and the news and things like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's very easy just to be in an echo chamber. You know, when you live in one of the kind of big cities, it's very easy just to just assume, well, I, I suppose just demonise those kinds of people or people with those sorts of attitudes or I don't know what the right word is actually. I suppose it's just out, outlook on life, which is different, right? And it's very, as you said, it's very easy to sort of um, polarise it in the way you think about it. And obviously the media does its best to propagate that too. But it, I mean, is that where you, is that where you grew up? Are you from that kind of area? Yeah, I'm sort of from us, I'm a different bit of Kent. So sort of Tunbridge Wells, sort of a village near Tunbridge Wells. So I've always been sort of slightly on the edge of, of the countryside somehow. Um, but it's definitely more rural where I am. I mean, um, uh, I have a farmer friend who comes and helps on the land from time to time and he doesn't have a passport. And I'm not, I don't think he's been to London and he's, <laughs> right, okay. you know, he's. Wow. I mean, that's like some 19th century stuff. Yeah. And it's, um, it's really great. It's really great to just have, have different perspectives, you know, because I think there's so much, particularly for us making music, right? Everything's on the computer. So it's impossible not to, I mean, maybe you've got more discipline than me, but I mean, I check. I check emails whilst I'm working in the studio, you know, every sort of... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's unavoidable, right? <laughs> yeah. Or I've got Slack with my company going on in the background. And so there's messages coming through from there. And and so you're sort of so... It's so like in computer world. And it's really... Um, it's really... I find it, as I get older, I find it almost essential that I have ways to break out of it. Otherwise, it's depressing you know um there's this really brilliant uh song called learn to swim part two by joshua idahen and apologies if i've pronounced your surname wrong joshua but he has this really brilliant line in it which says something like you're never at your best when you're scrolling you know and right. it, it sort of feels like that you know that it's never i never feel better after having spent time on the computer um, just reading news and sort of spending time sort of, I guess, engaging with social media and things like that. You know, you always feel like it's time not well spent or it doesn't, doesn't do anything sort of spiritually for you. 
Um, you can obviously discover amazing things and incredible music and articles and things like that, but it's that sort of that online, that digital online version of yourself, I think is really, I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel enriching in the way that, that I, I sort of open the computer and think, right, I'm going to be enriched today by learning something. <laughs> and then, and then right. at the end you're like, Oh, I'm not quite so sure I have been enriched. <laughs> I feel dirty. Absolutely. But it's compelling and it brings you back, right? It is because it's about attention and it, and then how does music fit into that? You know, how does music, where does that fit? You know, so, so I, I've made a record with a horse skeleton and I've been listening to it this morning, actually. Oh, great. And it's got Shabaka Hutchins. Um, it's got Seb Rochford. It's got Evan Parker. Instruments by Henry Dagg. Um, it's got... Um, Danilo Perez, who plays piano with Wayne Shorter, or did do until Wayne died recently, sadly. Um, it's got the London Contemporary Orchestra, who play with and make music with Johnny Greenwood and Radiohead and things. It's like really good people. And then we've got a video, um, a video made for us of an incredible Argentinian um, horse whisperer not seen very often, it's called the Doma India technique, where the horse ends up lying on its back on all fours and him lying on top of it. It's kind of like a love ritual. It's like a ritual. With a, it's sounding slightly dodgier the more I talk about it, but it's like a love ritual. <laughs> it's like a love ritual between a man and a horse. Like Purely platonic. No doubt. Purely platonic, yeah, but it's about trying to discover a different relationship with a horse. And, uh, and it's shot by a friend of mine, Sebastian Lelio, who won the Oscar for best foreign film for a fantastic woman a few years ago. His last film was with The Wonder with Florence Pugh last year, which I did the music for. And he's very well respected. And it's his first music video. And it's really unusual footage of this extraordinary guy. Um, plus, Sebastian's used AI to do some colouring, so it's got some really unusual colouring and, and weirdness to it. And he's created something really poetic, really beautiful. And and nobody will give us a premiere for it. You know, like nobody will put it on their website as a mm. as a thing. And I, you know, we've written to loads of people and just say, hey, we've done this video, are you up for putting it on your website and having it as a sort of premiere, like on a blog or something like that? And everybody said no, and I I really, really don't think I'm entitled to a video premiere on anybody's website. But I just, I just sort of feel like we created something that has value because it's done with, it's done by, I mean, I had nothing to do with the video. I just gave him some money and said, you can make a thing, do whatever you like with it, you know. And some, you know, an Oscar-winning director making it, making what I think is a really extraordinary video, certainly probably the best video I've ever had made over the years. And then trying to just find a space for that to exist in this culture is really, really depressing and difficult. And you just think, how on earth is a young, you know, if it's, if we've got all these things behind me and I'm established, how is it for a, an up and coming artist or a new artist to find a, a voice or a space or a hole to fit in? And when you think 
100,000 tracks are uploaded to Spotify every day, you know. Take you a year of continuous listening to listen to everything that's going to be uploaded today. And how do we, you know, where does music fit into that? And I'm really struggling. I don't know how you feel, but I, I'm struggling to work out where it fits in that attention, attention. Yeah, I don't think it does fit, actually. But just um, if I can just respond to what you um, yeah. just, just said, it seems like the, like the important word there is value. And how value is sort of denoted, you know, and, and what, what perception of value is, right? Because as you said, Oscar winning director makes first ever music video, <clears throat> excuse me, you think that on its own would be sufficient value, right? Yeah. <laughs> like independently of anything else. But like, we, I think it's a very skewed landscape now and one which I don't think really prioritizes, um, art for want of a better term at all no it's but then i think i think i wonder whether it's because journalists and and people that run those sites are hugely under pressure themselves you know like there's no money in journalism right they they never really got they never they never really got paid um you're doing this out of love right more than for money pretty much yeah (laughs) and and you know it's we're sort of, you know, like the whole Spotify thing is absolutely insane that, you know, I make, I make two or 300 quid a year off of three or 4,000 bits of music on, on Spotify. And so I'm subsidizing Spotify and they're just getting paid. You know, the people at the top are getting, you know, they're creating all this money for themselves and billions. And, you know, I'm like, why am I subsidizing billionaires you know like why am i mm. why am i creating value for them you know the use your value word again and so i just i guess that the whole infrastructure is under threat is in you know it so the people that a few years ago would have maybe had time to even watch a video maybe they're getting sent 30 videos a day and you know out of those three of the people that are sending them are advertisers. And so they have to give priority to the advertisers because that's how they keep the, the show on the road. But it's very, um, the whole ecosystem around music has collapsed entirely. Um, you know, I was reading that 50% of musicians in this country earn less than 10 grand a year. Um, so, I mean, it's, that's, it's extraordinarily low amounts of money for, you know, 80, 82%, I think the figure is, or something like that, of people that lose money on making music, you know. So, and, you know, I, I don't want this to sound like a, a moan from my position because I'm, I'm very lucky and I'm in a privileged position. I've been doing it a, a while now. But I just mean in terms of a sort of a wider cultural value or conversation that we might want to have around where music sits in in the environment in our sort of social or cultural environment it's just it doesn't feel good at the moment i have to say it doesn't no no I, I tend to agree and i think that's um it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that really it's music as a whole has been devalued substantially um, incrementally over time, I think you know, maybe since two th- around 2000, that kind of 
you know, the, the commonly used inflection point of Napster and all the rest of it. And then it's sort of accelerated by streaming, arguably, certainly in terms of um, the way the money is shared around. Because, you know, the overall pot has in, increased with streaming, but that hasn't, you know, <laughs> trickle down economics obviously is, well, we know what it is, right? Yeah. We know what it is. Yeah, it's like we've just built a mirror of every other exploitative industry, like the food industry. Or, <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. Yeah, it's just taken that, it's taken that model and, and, and run with it. And because we love and care so much about music and creating things, we'll happily do it. We'll happily just, well, not, not necessarily happily, but we'll do it anyway. And, you know, I don't know whether to take my music off Spotify or not. Um, because obviously a lot of yeah, that's that's you know, a, a question that's been asked more than once on the show on the program, and there doesn't seem to be a well. I mean, I, well, I think the um the most common answer is probably not, but you know, with a heavy heart, it feels like everyone's waiting, basically. don't they? It feels like everyone's yeah. waiting. I mean, I've started doing some research into what it would might what it might mean to be an in, to create an independent streamer, and sort of put together like a little working party and we're trying to build a thing um, and work out what it might, what it might mean or how it might fit together or something. But, but it's, you know, how, how can you compete against the jolly green giant as my, my friend calls it, you know, it's like it's such a beast. Um, but I mean, it, it won't take long. I mean, what was, what was really shocking, which I, uh, I read in the London Review of Books the other day about Spotify, which was that Spotify, when it started, um, was built on pirated music. Um, yeah. So it was just, you know, they had this huge pirated music catalogue and that's what they used to set up the, to set the service up originally. So the whole thing's built on theft and not paying musicians. Yeah, I mean, I think this, the story of it is largely Daniel Ek being able to sort of parlay that with the, with the majors into something commercially tangible, you know? And, you know, the, the majors are, <laughs> well, I mean, we all have our opinion of them, right? And I think usually it's not a great one, is it? It's not. So, listen, let, let's, um, let's try and lighten the mood slightly because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we're in danger of, um, yeah. of uh, yes. Let's, let, well, let, let me ask you a couple of questions that I wanted to ask yeah, up front, right. actually, before we, before we went down this road, which are ge- really general questions that I've been asking of people who've come on the show recently. So the first one is, do you have a definition of creativity? Um, I, I've never been asked that question. So the, uh, the, the short answer is no, I don't have one, but I could. That's an answer. That's a reasonable answer. Yeah, <laughs> but do you have, if you want to have a stab at it. Yeah, I can have a stab at it. I think, I think it's probably changed over the years. And you sort of catch me at a particular time, having just done this horse record and it being quite a sort of life-changing experience for me because I... I went as part of making it, and you can hear it on the record, I went to Paleolithic Caves in northern Spain to record sounds of caves in front of the world's oldest horse drawings. And so I sort of went right back to the early origins of music. And since that point, I've just found myself in completely uncharted territory. So, which is exciting, but it's sort of about materials, you know, talking about laptops earlier, but, but, you know, the, this record's been made with bones that smell and they've still occasionally got a bit of grease left on them and you're blowing through the legs of a horse and you're hitting skin stretched, horse skin stretched over wood. So it's, I've had a really 
different kind of year. And the place where I'm at, at at the moment is that I feel that I'm looking for or engaged with trying to understand or create or to generate transcendence. And I think that's what creativity is meaning for me at the moment. And, um, and I think it's a complicated political place to be because the problems of the world are so big at the moment. You know, we're living through an existential crisis and it's not, it's not going to end in our lifetime. It's going to get worse, not better. Um, sorry, you were trying to lighten the mood. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so does your music take a, does your, you know, music has to, anything that you create now has to take a position in relation to, into the challenges around which we exist, you know, around access to um, resources. You know, if you've got limited electricity a day or you've got, you want to limit your carbon footprint or you want to try and live a healthier life in terms of using less resources, then every note becomes precious somehow. So do you, do your, does your work try to engage with that and try and change that? Or does it, um, so when you, when you talk about, when we talk about transcendence, we often think about leaving the body or leaving the planet or leaving the situation behind. And that's potentially, you know, there's a huge amount of music on Spotify, a very large chunk of it that is about exactly that is about sort of a, a world that is free from the kind of, you know, you, if you looked at the top hundred songs streaming on Spotify right now, you'd struggle to find a mention of climate change or COVID or economic collapse mm. or whatever the top 10 stories are. Um, and so I think that it's a slightly complicated place to create, work when when we're living through such a fundamental um, challenge as a society but at its heart i think i'm yeah i think i'm looking for and trying to create some form of transcendence okay well the next question i think is almost likely well i think you're going to answer it in a similar way and you may just want to give the same answer but what is the definition of art then to you um my definition of art would be um about imagining the future so i i think there's a sort of i think there's essentially a uh, you know there's often talk about art particularly great artists in the canon in the white male european canon you know in the way that great artists are talked about you know like beethoven and picasso or something like that about there being a melancholy somehow in in the creative process and i uh or sorry in the person but I think there's maybe something, there's maybe a, a melancholy in the act of creativity, which is something doesn't exist yet, which I would like to exist in the world, or that I need to exist, that, that I have a need that's not being met yet. And so for me, the act of creation or the act of making something is trying to describe a future or trying to bring a future into life because there's a... a there's a lack or there's a need for something to exist that doesn't exist um, at present. And so I think that has a melancholiness to underlying or underpinning it, um, that you're trying to change the world, you know. So for me, art is about, is about describing the future or inventing the future or 
um, filling a hole in the future or trying to prepare yourself for the future. So it's something about that for me. Mm. So is creativity inherently artistic? No, I don't think so. I think that creativity for me is probably more tied to the imagination and that can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. And I, I really, one of the great, this is going to be a recurring theme, by the way, which is like, you'll try and like keep it light and I will always come bring it back to the Tories. Um, but you know, this is, this is why I really, really hate. Well, one of the, one of the reasons I really hate the sort of the Tories at the moment, leaving aside the really life and death stuff that they're in, you know, and the sort of collapse of the country, but the sort of war on creativity, you know, like um, if you read Dominic Cummings blog and things like that, he never talks about art and he, you know, he set up this new aria thing, which is, um, which is a, a rip off of the American thing that kind of invented the internet. Um, but they're sort of like got a, it's like a research and development um, yeah. cutting edge science project thing. But there's no art in there. There's no artist, and there's not. There's no that deliberately excluded as if they have no value. But actually, the fundamentals of all human societies are storytelling. You know, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What do we believe in? What does our culture? What does our food look taste like? What are our, what? What's our national costume? How do we cut our hair? What's our dialogue like? You know, it's all about storytelling, and the the create. And the imagination is fundamental and fundamentally at the root of all of human civilization. So for me, I think, I think we do a disservice to our fellow travelers to claim creativity and imagination for artists and musicians and, and the sort of cultural side of society. I really, I, I strongly believe that. So for example, building a bridge, you know, why, why do you need to build a bridge? Well, because somebody said, I think we should go over there. I'd like to go over there and let's imagine what it's like over there. It must be, must have something that we need over there or we'd like, or we'd like to steal or take or, or conquer, or, or we want to get away from where we are. That's an act of the imagination to build a bridge and to think that, that there's a possibility of going elsewhere. And, you know, a bus driver has to imagine, you know, might be, might be driving through a particularly complex set of traffic lights or roundabout or and has to and sees all sorts of things going on and has to ne- negotiate and use their imagination to position their bus in a way that isn't going to cause huge problems for everybody else and at the same time keep the, the schedule on time or or fit under a narrow bridge that's coming up or whatever it might be and I think that and I really and I think it's one of the you know, it's very, very hard to work out what, what, what one should be nationalistic about, as in what one can be proud of about. Particularly, Britain has a long history of thinking it's on the right side of history, and and actually invariably not being that. But I think one of the things that we're really, I think that one of the things that we're really good at is the imagination. You know, from. Mm. The, from engineering to filmmaking to book writing to music making, um, and I think that 
So I think that imagination, that sort of that relationship between the creativity and the imagination, I think is absolutely core to who we are, to who we are as people. And I think we have to be careful that we don't co-opt it purely for ourselves and Mm. separate, because I think that's the trap that the Tories have fallen into and the sort of modern capitalist world has fallen into, which is, it's just, it's a thing. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that provides decoration in hotels, you know, like that, that, that looks nice in art galleries or that is heard in concert halls. And it, and actually it's, it's actually the, the complete founding blocks of every, foundation blocks of everything that we, we build and how we build and why we build them. Yeah. Okay. So I've, I've realized that, um, well, from reading a bunch of your previous interviews that you are quite a quotable person. You've got <laughs> a knack for a good line. So you you have said making music as a living is about discipline, application, and craft. I'm quite interested in the definition in the in the difference in the difference in definitions between art and craft. And the the example you just gave about the bridge building, I thought you were going to say I thought you were going to go straight to engineering is creative pursuit, but then actually you went to much more of a kind of uh, comment about the intention of building that bridge, which seems almost artistic actually in the way you described it. So. What is the difference in your in your mind and you know in the instance of what you do? Like how do you distinguish between craft and you know, that can mean anything. Yeah. Versus versus art and how you just described it. Again, I'm not quite sure. I'll have to work it out as I as I start talking, but I, I can <laughs> that's maybe fine. that's fine. I can maybe talk a bit about pot because I've got really into ceramics and pottery over the last few years. And my mum was a potter. And my mum died when I was relatively young, when I was 22. And I've got a series of her pots and they're so beautiful. And in a way, it's a chance to reconnect with my mum many years later somehow. It's sort of annoying. I'd love to her to still be around so I could talk about ceramicists that I like and what she was thinking and what she thought. But I've really grown to love pots, cups and bowls and things and vases and plates um, because they have a sort of utilitarian function. And there's an incredible, uh, I I had a bit of a epiphany or a really, a really gorgeous moment in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. And I went there to see all the sort of the stuff that one should see in inverted commas, you know, all the the grandmasters and things. And there is some Mm. pretty, amazing pictures there but downstairs almost in the dark they had this exhibition called uh cosmos in a bowl and it was a it was a kind of a collection of it was a collection of uh bowl raku bowls made by japanese um many generations of japanese artists making them in the same way since um 15th century and they were incredibly avant-garde for the 15th century i mean really i mean they're very simple and i mean raku bowls just very quickly they're incredible so they take rocks out of the i mean raku is a wood firing technique but these particular bowls that are made from 
um, stones that are taken from the river. They grind the stones down to make the clay. They're made on a hand wheel, not on a sort of turning wheel. And they're sort of sculpted more than turned. And they're sort of sculpted and then they're placed into a wood-fired kiln. And then they take them out uh, when they've been, when, when they're being fired, dip them in water, into cold water, then immediately fill them with tea and drink from them. And so it's a very, it's sort of from, from a stone in a river to, to, to sort of drinking out of it in a relatively short period of time. And, and they can take responsibility for all of that process. And there's just, and you see how these shapes of these particular Kyoto Raku bowls evolve over, you know, um, 500 years. Sometimes very subtle, sometimes in huge leaps. And there's something so, so inspiring about it that sort of answers your question really in a way, which is it's somewhere between, um, it exists in a really beautiful place between craft and art, between expressing yourself and having a, and having a place in relation to others, you know, in this case, providing a cup or something that you can drink from um, or share or pass around or leave on to somebody and being able to touch it as well, interact with it. It's like sculpture that you can drink from. And, and I, and I really love that. But I think in terms of music, a really, um, there's a really I had a, quite a strange experience when I did my big band um, when I first started doing my big band which is these musicians the musicians that I was working with were incredible and really had learnt the craft of their instruments you know to the point of still practicing four hours a day to stay at the top of their game and to be able to sit down and again Britain is one of the best places in the world to do this, not just big band, but film musicians will sit down and will sight read a piece of music to click and pretty much get it right first time. And after three takes, they've nailed it, you know, and it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary achievement. And I'm in total awe that they can just sit down and interpret dots on a page in a musical way and get it, you know, and have a click going in their back and having, just got off of a tube in, you know, near Abbey Road and just yep. sort of walked in, tuned up their instruments, sat down, put headphones, and then played something perfectly they've never seen before. The craft involved with that is beautiful. And I and I have so much respect for that. But interestingly, some of the big band players, in fact quite a few of them, they are um jobbing musicians. And so they will so one of them, for example, did did Starlight Express for 27 years. And that's my idea of hell. You know, not, <laughs> not only is it the same idea, same piece of music every night, but it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's music. I mean, <laughs> so shockingly bad. Like, but there was a huge amount of respect for him amongst the other musicians because he'd held down this job. He'd turned up and he'd performed it perfectly without any mistakes you make a mistake you're fired you don't get booked get booked again so to perform for perfectly for 27 years and there's others that play you know in the lion king and all sorts of shows and things and that attention to sort of craft but when you hear their own music some of them not not necessarily the two 
players I referred to there, but some of the others in the band, it's not particularly great. It's like the it's like the act of learning the mute, learning the instrument, mastering the instrument is different from it's a different muscle than composing. Um, yeah, for sure it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I found that really, I found that real struggle and really shocking when I first started working with a big band. Um, and I really, I've got so really, much. Really, so was your, yeah. was, sorry, let me just interrupt you. Was your, no, um, w- was your intuition that, that the two things should correlate as in being good at one would lead to being good at the other, or at least would, you know, the two things would happen at, at once? I think I'd smerged them into uh, through my ignorance and I just smerged them into one that a musician was a musician was a musician. And um, I think because I started out as a musician myself and then moved into composition, I assumed that it was just a kind of, there was a sort of fluid line as a invisible, there was no membrane between the two, but actually as I've got older, I realized there's, there's quite, strong membranes you know another good example would be composers you know i think he um com- sorry conductors mm. you know i think it's really interesting for example that um two of the best conductors um the last hundred years like bernstein and Boulez, were both incredible composers in their own right but they sort of in a way right. right kind of stopped composing and just became conductors instead but it's like it's almost like you can't fully be one and the other, you know? Um, and so I really, yeah, I mean, I certainly know. think, sorry. Um, I certainly think the commitment, I mean, as you said, the commitment to being a, a very high level or a top level instrumentalist is considerable, not just in getting there, but staying there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, also I think the same thing, you can see the same thing is true in, in the more sort of dance electronic, world that we're in which is there's people that i mean one of my um one of my real heroes in music is paul johnson and Mm. just his ability to take very simple elements and and create the most unbelievable grooves with them and sort of learning and mastering that or you look at one of my favorite record labels is dance mania and they have this sort of collection of noises. Uh oh, or like right. um whatever it might be, all these like little memes and little sonic memes and and drum patterns and drum machines and things like that. The craft of it is really like it feels like the potters, you know, it feels like the Japanese potters, you know, just taking five years to just create new shapes with the same materials and trying to find new ways into that material. And I've got a lot of love and time and respect for that. For me, that doesn't really work. I'm too, I'm too impatient and I find it hard to sit still for one for too long. So I, I want to move on to the next thing and try something else and, and figure it out. But I, it is something that I was, was part of my growing up uh, part of me trying to sorry part of me going through a growing up period realizing that craft and art there is there is some 
air between those two positions. Yeah, that's a really, um, well, <laughs> what I, what came into my head as you were saying that is that's a very charitable view of dance music and its sort of incremental nature and sort of the, the process of refinement that's happened over the last 30 years, which is to say not a lot new has happened, but there's been a kind of gradual whittling down or what well, a refinement is maybe a better word. And yeah, comparing it to that sort of, um, yeah, to J- Japanese pottery is, yeah, I mean, it's ne- never even occurred to me to look at it in such a positive light, but I suppose, yeah, I can, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. But I think I, I, I would, I wouldn't say it about all dance music because, sure, um, sure. and I, I think, you know, I've got a particular love for the sort of Chicago scene. I think particularly because of where it came from, you know, which was, it started, you know, house music to a large extent started there. Um, and it was a black queer scene, you know, a safe space. And, um, and so I sort of, it feels like their form in a way to, to carve or to shape or to, um, uh, refine. Mm. I think what I think when it, I think what I find very hard now is that is that actually, and it might be something to do with relationship between hardware and software as well. You know, which is like as dance music moved moves almost completely now into software. Mm. It's it's that ref, it stopped being refinement, I think, and it started to be a kind of um, a sort of a whirlpool, um, a sort of an inwards sort of sucking down the plug hole, whatever you would call that, um, mm. that whirlpool. But, you know, for example, you know, you and I might never have made dance music and then we could download a we could download a program relatively quickly and by the end of today we could have written four pieces of music that would that would sound um that would sound authentic for want of a better word but you know it would sound roughly like yeah, real but the thing. term the term that i've used is good enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah they would sound good enough because basically they've just you know, like logic now has all these loops that you can just drag them across, you know, okay, you want techno loop, okay, just drag it across. It's like musical shopping. You know, you want you want that Chicago sound, okay, great. Here's a Chicago um sound pack that has all those dance mania things on it. And you can just assemble them yourself and they're all in time and they're all they've all been compressed and EQ'd, you know, things like kick drums, you know, like um if you were to download a, seri- a sort of series of kick drums, well, the person or the people that made that pack of kick drums would have spent ages EQing them and compressing them to get them exactly as they thought they would have wanted. But then the first thing everybody does now is compress and EQ their kick drum, you know, <laughs> import them into their computer and then just add compression and, you know, like, it, it's really, um, it's just layer upon layer of, this is what I mean about the whirlpool effect. It's sort of like it's everything is sort of like it's further and further removed from the source. Like it's 
it's sort of a 909 at some stage someone will, will have, it would have been a 909 but it's now been sampled and then someone sampled it and then put it on a sample cd or what have you in the 90s and then that was sampled to make a sound pack for a contact instrument and then somebody else has sampled that and then put it onto a record and then someone sampled that record and then it's just it's, <laughs> right. just it's just this sort of like feedback loop and i think that and so sonically things don't sound very nice at the moment um i think part because partly because of that because it's layering of layering of compression and equalization on top of itself um so i think those two things are existing simultaneously which is there's a sort of a generous refinement as you as you sort of called it but then there's also this sort of sucking down a hole of like where's the invention gone you know where's the creativity mm. gone and um i think that's hard i think that's really hard yeah okay so to return returning to the arts and or art and craft question or moving on from it rather so having made that distinction having you know pointed out the the lack of relationship should we say between technical skill mastery of an instrument and composition and, and the making of music um i mean obviously you've made a ton of highly conceptual projects albums and um, obviously the horse one is, is the most recent. So in terms of expressing art in quotation marks, the concept also in quotation marks is presumably the most important thing. Is that your view? I mean, it depends what I'm making. And um, because of course music isn't, you know, music is a million things, you know, it's a ringtone and it's a, it's a classical orchestral concert. And it's a, um, there's that great quote from John Cage. It's like, what's more musical, a, a truck driving past a music school or a truck driving past a factory? And, um, and you know, I, since, since the inver- invention of microphones, tape machines, samplers, computers and things, you know, everything, every sound can be m- music now. But I... I'm a bit resistant to the sort of conceptual idea. I have to say, um, it's just I'm just making records about things, you know. Um, I I don't feel like someone would call a film a conceptual film. Sure, I mean conceptual is a bit of a loaded term, right? It is, yeah. And I, I I'm not having a go. I don't mind you using it, but I'm just sort of I'm just sort of it, it's one of those things that there's still those sort of prog rock things, uh, associations of like, you know, concept albums or whatever. Yes. And, it, and I'm just like, I'm just making, I'm just making records about stuff, you know, and I, you know, I've made, I don't know, 35, 40 albums by now. And I, it's so, I don't really want to write albums relentlessly about me and myself, you know, so I, I quite like to write them about other things. and. Let me sorry. Let me just ask you a question about that. So, using that album explicitly as, as denoting projects, do you think about your work in that specific uh, format, and have all of your albums followed a what? I mean, again, yeah, conceptual in quotation marks kind of a framework. Yeah, I think probably not all of them, but most of them. I think it's just about. I think, you know. 
as you're only too well aware, when you open your computer, there's infinite possibilities multiplied by infinite possibilities. You know, you can literally do anything with any with anything. So you can make a you make a, you can make a brick sound like a trombone, and you can make a trombone sound like a horse, and you can make a horse sound like a nuclear power station, and you can make a nuclear power station sound like a nine oh nine. It's like there's nothing. There's nowhere you can't go sonically and musically anymore. And that's so overwhelming that it, that you need a framework around it. And, um, and so all I'm doing is, is I'm just putting frames around bits of it. And some of the frames are like, so I did a record called, uh, oh, that's a really bad example. <laughs> So I did a record called One One where I was like, I'll just use any sound I want and I'm just I just write these songs. But then the concept was I did everything. So there was a concept behind it, which is like right. oh, okay. I'll just do everything. I think I just made a record with hundreds of people and I was like, okay, I just need to go back to basics. Um mm. But I just think that there's you know, as musicians, composers, makers of music, whatever we are. We've given we've been given ourselves an extraordinary tool. We've we anything is now music. So there's a wasp suddenly stuck in my studio that I can see over there. It's like I can make it out of that, mm. or I can make it out of TikTok videos of um, the Gaza Israel conflict at the moment. So what am i going to do and i and i think it's really um that's why I, it's actually i wrote a manifesto 20 years ago for this very reason which was like i don't the, the manifesto is there really really is just to say to me to remind myself don't forget the entire rules of music have changed in your lifetime don't forget you know don't just get sucked into making dance music tunes that that work well in other people's DJ sets, you know, or don't just make t- music for TV shows because you need the money and there's, you know, they're offering you some money. It's like, no, this is like a revolution. Nobody talks about it like that, but it is, it's a revolution. It's like uh, in visual art, it's like moving from pencil and paper or paint, painting on and paper to video recording. Yeah. It's they sort of missed out photography and gone straight to video recording. And it's such a huge jump that I think it's taken people bit by surprise, you know, and, but actually it's a, it's a profound revolution. Like why anybody, I mean, I know the answer to this, but why anybody is using a 909 and a 808, I have no idea. Like if you're writing a piece of dance music this afternoon and you use a 909 or an 808, you're literally up against two or three million people also this afternoon trying to sound original with a 909 and an 808. You know, you're up against the odds of you coming up with a piece of music that, that is original and that cuts through the two, 2,999,999 other people with those same sounds this afternoon. It's pretty small. Whereas if someone's making a record out of, if I'm making a record out of the wasp that's stuck in my studio this afternoon, there's probably not that many people making a record with a wasp this afternoon. And that doesn't make mine better, 
But what it does is it immediately creates a space for yourself. You carve out your own space. You're interacting with the world. You're telling stories. You're, it's immediately has a better chance of being original, of, of finding an audience, of, of feeling connected to the world. Of, I mean, maybe not the Wasp record particularly, but, but you know, if I'm your question about creativity and art earlier on, you know, about transcendence, you know, it's, if you're, if you're using a 909 and 808 this afternoon to try and reach transcendence, it's going to be a lot harder, you know. Right, you probably won't, right? <laughs> yeah, you probably won't unless, unless it's like a Luke Slater gig, unless it's Luke Slater and he's going to play it that evening in a sweaty warehouse and, you're, and it's potentially really transcendent, but. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> well, that's something different though, right? That's, not, that's uh, an experience of music achieving transcendence. Yeah, probably. maybe so. Maybe so. But, but it, it's just, it's like such a gift. It's such a gift. I, you know, and I've been doing it now since beginning of the nineties. So I've been doing it. Where are we? Nineties, 20, 30, 33, 34 yeah. years. Yeah. And I'm like, mm. and people talk about it like it's my thing. And I'm like, it's not my thing. It's all of our things. I don't understand why, you know, every time, you know, all of my interviews, when I made a record out of a pig, they're like, they all start with like, why are you making a record out of a pig? And I'm like, you don't start an interview with some with a band going, why are you making a record with a guitar? You know, it's like madness. Why would you possibly pick up a guitar? I mean, I know why it's, it can sound great and it feel exciting to play. And maybe that's the instrument that you've crafted and there's always place for guitars. But it's, if we want to change the status quo, if we want to create something original, if we want to poke the universe, if we want to, uh, challenge ourselves if we want to engage with the world in difference if we want to try and find new musical textures if we want to find ourselves in weird ethical territories if we want to feel alive i don't know i just feel that pigs are more interesting than guitars right now um well they okay let, let me ask you a question it seems like this is you know, the, the difference between a guitar band now and someone who's making music out of uh, a, a wasp sample, to stick with that one, is this the difference between popular culture, which is to say culture that is inherently 
mm, inherently palatable to a mass market and just culture at the risk of sounding pretentious, which may be more something to do with making art for its own sake. Are those distinctions useful? I'm, I know what you're saying, but I'm not sure they are. Dis, I don't, I'm not sure they are useful um, mm. because when you think about the really iconic works in popular culture, they've all taken the next leap. You know, they've all they've all gone a step beyond. They've all entered into um, into different territory. You know, like Sergeant Pepper or. Yeah. Um, or Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, you know, like huge leaps that redefined um, eras. Or you think about Bob Dylan going electric. I mean, it's not that exciting to me, but for some people, that's a that was a big, a big moment. And yeah, in the moment, that was fundamental to people, wasn't it? Yeah. And though those shifts in popular culture are, in a way, have potentially more impact than than um, me and my pig, for example. So I think talking a bit, uh, you know, I run the Radiophonic Workshop um, for the BBC and, you know, the Radiophonic Workshop is a really good example of this, which is that uh, what they were doing in the Radiophonic Workshop was not a million miles away what Pierre Boulez uh, was doing with Urcam in France. And what Stockhausen was doing uh, in Germany, but actually what they were doing, they were doing it on Saturday nights, kids' telly, you know. Right. Uh, Doctor Who noises. There's weird noises on Doctor Who, you know. They're they're music concrete, you know. That's that's proper avant-garde stuff. And that's the BBC, you know. That's the brilliance of the BBC doing it on Saturday night on on telly and that sort of unapologetic, you know, Citizen Kane's another example, that unapologetically weird, a West Side Story, these weird ballerinas being pretending to be gangsters, you know, so beautiful, such a brilliant piece of work, but very odd, really. And, and so I do, I do think that, um, that maybe in musical, in the music world, the, the majors have, or the sort of that major way of, major record way of thinking has created this distinction between popular music and art and, and a more artistic music or what have you. But actually, that when those two things to come together is when the best bits of work are made and, and actually hugely commercially successful often as well. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the comparison with Hollywood's jumped out at me there. I mean, the, difference between 70s Hollywood cinema and 80s Hollywood cinema is often sort of highlighted with Heaven's Gate as being the yeah. inflection point for some people um, or maybe widely for critics. But so when, I mean, was there, is there something similar? Is there a similar point in music where that happened? Well, I think, I think presumably, I mean, again, I'm sort of making this up on the spot. So afterwards I'll kick myself yeah. and come up with 10 examples. I think that, <laughs> I think that the journey that the Beatles went on in a very short period of time as young men from, from very, very poppy derivative stuff to really out there experimental stuff. I think that's, that 
and and sort of taking the the British audience or the the global audience with them on that journey, I think is really great. I think uh, Radiohead's journey is really interesting. Um, not not too dissimilar, you know. Still one of the biggest bands in the world, um, even though they haven't made a record for a few years now. But that sort of taking the audience with them, I think. Um, I think it would be very, very hard to um, understate, overstate the significance of uh, Timberland and the Neptunes in the 90s. Mm. And, you know, I can remember hearing Get Your Freak On by Missy Elliott for the first time and just thinking, oh, well, that's, that's blown a massive hole in the electronic music boat because... They just took they took ideas that we were messing around with and just did it better and on a bigger <laughs> yeah basically and, and, right. and on a bigger platform yeah. and went on to have a huge hit and I just you know that kind of that experimentation that in public you know in in American hip hop and that you can still find pockets of I think is extraordinarily innovative. And mainstream and weird, you know. You can hear it a bit with Billie Eilish as well, can't you? You know, some of that. Yeah, the early Billie Eilish stuff, I think, is extremely good and yeah. very, just extremely distinctive, you know, like yeah. just very, very original, actually, but particularly in terms of something which is so uh, commercially viable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit more about hip hop because, I mean, what I was getting at, I suppose, with the original question was, you know, don't, um, sorry, guitar bands <clears throat> fit into this kind of cultural space, which has been static, you know, for decades, basically. <laughs> um, even if the way the the records are made has, has changed, what they actually sound like isn't, you know, materially much different. Yeah. But, hip, but with hip hop, I think you're right to say that even though maybe it's slowed down a bit in the last decade, there still exists um, r- real what the fuck moments when you hear certain records, which you don't really get, certainly not in, in commercial music, yeah, really anywhere else. What do you, I mean, what do you put that down to? I mean, I, I often think that um, we've talked quite a bit on the show previously about the importance of like small geographical scenes and small groups of people really kind of competing with each other in the best possible sense to make weird and weird but accessible stuff that people vibe to you know for want of a better term do you i mean yeah what what's your kind of general observation of of that kind of innovative nature of hip various hip-hop scenes in the u.s and not just the u.s by the way actually yeah um i'm i'm not really sure i wonder if it's something to do with collaboration um and that's something that you know we haven't that i should probably have talked a bit more about during the when you're talking about craft and things which is um you know, it's Timberland plus Missy Elliott. You know, it's yeah. Um, Neptune's was two of them, not just one of them. And and then of course you need a a rapper um, on top. And I I I sort of wonder whether that's you know dance music and electronic music and things. We're not particularly great at collaborating. Um, it's quite hard to just sort of put two computers alongside each other. Um, right, and the kind of legendary archetype is the, is the bloke bedroom. in his bedroom, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if it's just that vocal thing. I think that whether that 
that needs something. But I, you know, I personally speaking, I, I think all the best or the things that I'm proudest of are, are things that I haven't made. Really? <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're things that I've, that I have, how I've shaped with uh, working with other people, and you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I, there's no way I would be doing anything that I would be doing now if it wasn't for other people. That sounds really a really banal observation, but I, you know, the the record with a horse that I've just finished. You know, there's an orchestra on there. You know, I stopped playing the violin at aged 18. I could sort of scrape a few notes here, there, but I couldn't play the music that I'd written like that. You know, I couldn't have worked without Hugh Brunt, the orchestrator, to um, to do all the parts for it and to orchestrate it. I couldn't have done, uh, I couldn't play the flute like Shabaka, like the bone horse leg bone flutes, the way that Shabaka did. And those are his notes that are on the, on the record. Um, you know, and so on and so forth. And I, you know, like the big band period that I went through, I ended up doing quite a lot of shows internationally and touring a lot. And with it, again, I, I don't even play a, a wind instrument, you know, and it was only because of Pete Rate, the, 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 uh, the big band arranger that I worked with, that I was able to do all of that stuff. And so that, that I, you know, I'm really, I didn't study music at university. I studied drama. And so I'm always at the limits of my ability and I'm consciously pushing myself to go places where I'm really out of my depth. And I was reading somewhere that that's what it's, that's what it's like. Uh, like I, I think maybe it's around West Side Story. I'm working on a big musical at the moment, so I'm spending a lot of time listening and looking at West Side Story. Um, to make my life hard. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they were talking about everybody just slightly out of control, you know, everybody not quite being a, not, not quite being, um, and as a result, every, the thing sort of taking off, you know, because everybody's going beyond what they've done before or what they think they're capable of. And I think that that sort of collaborative, the sort of value of collaboration is what I I just yeah as I said I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here and created half the work I've done without without other people and I think that that maybe that 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 collaborative quality I think potentially is a really valuable driving force of American hip hop I, I mean particularly as well amongst rappers you know guest spots and things and you even think of Wu Tang Clan or something like a group of rappers coming together you know, and, and sort of creating yeah. work together as an ensemble and there being more than one producer and things. I mean, you, you look at a modern rap album, there's hundreds of collaborators, right? Like every track's often got different, different mm. groups of people and things like that. So maybe, maybe it's something around that. Yeah. Let me ask you about those large collaborative projects that you've done. Let's some, in fact, I wanted to ask you about the Brexit one anyway. So yeah. let's take that as an example of the state between us, which was with uh, Matthew Herbert Big Band. Um, can you describe your role in practical terms in a project like that, you know, where there's literally hundreds of people involved in it? Um, so I think, I think that 
projects on that scale can only work when everybody, when people believe in it. Because, you know, on that record, there was more than a thousand musicians and singers and collaborators. So, and I'd say 95% of them weren't paid. So if you're going to marshal and ask things of people, it's got to be a compelling offer. It's got to be something that they're happy to put their voice to or give their time to for free and contribute. And so your first job is to come, come up with a, is to sort of road test a compelling idea by which I mean, I sort of say to the people I work with, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Does this sound some, does this sound like a good, is this exciting? I mean, you know, my, I have a small team, but you know, that's a mammoth bit of production work needed to gather everybody together. Even just things like getting their names right for the, for the artwork, let alone making sure everyone's signed a release form and all the rest of it. So my team are very, I couldn't do it without my team. And um, they, they're incredible and patient and loyal and try and make things happen. And I, I think it's about, I think there's something about messing around as well <laughs> and about silliness. So for example, in that we deep fried a trumpet. We charted a second world war. So you deep fried a trumpet. Yeah. You say. Yeah. <laughs> I was like doing fish and chips. I wanted to do something about fish and chips. Oh, right. Okay. And so I was like, we were, we went to visit the fish and chip shop and I was like, can we deep fry a trumpet? And again, you're just trying to find ideas that can summarize the stupidity of Brexit. And, you know, it's about symbols and things like that. And then we, we charged, we rented a second world war plane and went up in that. I paid, uh, well, we had somebody swim the channel for us and recorded them doing that. We, there's all sorts of things on there. I can't remember them all right now. Oh, yeah, somebody walked the Northern Ireland border for us, um, recording sounds along the way. Um, Charlie Morris. And um, so you've got to, like, it's got to be something that people believe in and that, and that they trust you and they trust you in it for the right reasons. And because you just can't do it, you can't do it without there. So your your job really is to is to poke an idea as hard as possible, as many times as possible, until things appear that make sense. So swimming the English Channel, for example, is a really great metaphor, I think, for a record about Brexit. You know, Which way do you record them swim- swimming? Do you, do you record them swimming from France to England or from England to France? You know? And if it's from England to France, it's a really beautiful, like the strong, long endeavor of listening to somebody swim for 14 hours to the continent, sort of like, don't leave us <laughs> or, or we're leaving, you know, we're coming to, we're coming to be part of you or whatever it might be. So, um, and then things tend to just sort of fall into place in the sense that as soon as people believe in something, then they're empowered to do something. So, um, Esmeralda Condoruis got in touch, who's a, a core choir person. And she's like, I'm, you know, I'd love to help. I, you know, I'd love to take a position on Brexit. How can I help? And I met her and then 
was like, well, it'd be great to get a choir together. And she's like, I think I can get a choir. I was like, well, how big can you get? And she's like, I think I can get a hundred people. And then we're like, okay, great. So we, you start to build it and then you do. And then I went to the British council and I said, I've got this big collaborative project across Europe. Um, are you up for helping support? You know, like it's a chance for um, people to come and sing in fancy venues um, with us and perform gigs with us. So we got choirs together, volunteer choirs of all ages. You know, we'd sometimes get a hundred. Most we had probably was 130 singers come and join us on stage. Um, and then, you know, we got put in a, the main square in Madrid. They closed the main square to traffic and put us in there and did a big free concert of it. And it's, it sort of accumulates um, because the idea because an idea will have legs and there's many thousands of ideas that I've had that have fallen on their ass. So it's, or that aren't great or that people aren't excited about or people won't lend a hand for. And, and so it's really like a kind of, I think it's sort of about living your values a bit, you know, which is like, I really, as you can probably tell, I'm really down on the Tories. And, and it's not, <laughs> I, yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> and it's not, it's not enough just to say the Tories are shit and we have to come up with an alternative. I think, you know, that's part of it. So it's sort of living the principles of that. So how would I like to organize a society? Well, I'd like to organize a society around a positive vision about ideas of tolerance and compassion and about welcoming people that have suffered from torture in different countries. Um, it's about accepting that other people might have a different relationship to their body or their gender than I do. Um, it might, you know, it, and so on and so forth, you know, and being able to on a scale, on a project that scale as well as being able to accept that there's differences of opinion in it, that some people might think Brexit's a good idea. Some people might think it's a terrible idea. Some people might not know whatever. And so it's about trying to trying to create something where where everybody is welcome somehow in this in this thing, and that tolerant uh, d- um, uh, dissent is tolerated um, as long as people are treated with respect and kindness and love and and so on and so forth. So it's it's in a way you're sort of building a little city or a little town. You know you're and saying, opening the doors to people that want to come in. And if people want to, the more people that want to come in, the more exciting it gets, and the bigger it gets and so on. But sometimes I've opened the doors and nobody wants to come in and that's totally fine. But it's, it has to be voluntary. It has to be compassionate. It has to be compelling. Otherwise there's just, yeah, otherwise it just won't work. Mm. Yeah. So you've talked a lot, yeah, about politics and, and your music and the importance of it. I mean, so quote, some people think my political position is something imposed on the music, but actually it's the whole reason I make music. I've always wanted to change the world. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a big statement right there, particularly the last bit. But <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I think, I think it's absolutely laudable and I wish there was more of that kind of stuff yeah. amongst contemporary musicians. But, but, I wanted to ask you about how you get, because it's some, I guess I suppose it's a 
return to the sort of that conceptual word, the C word. How do you get, how do you, how do you communicate a political message in what is for the most part, I'm generalizing across, like you say, 35 to 40 albums there, but mostly instrumental music. Certainly there's a, a lot of your albums are mostly instrumental. How do you commu- communicate a political message just through the music itself? I mean, sure. Yeah. Well, I think I, 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 I really, you know, I just, I think everything's political. I'm sort of one of those people, <laughs> one of those people. I think everything is political that you do mm. or, or, or you don't do. And, you know, like George Orwell says, it says, if you choose to make your work, not political, that's a political decision in and of itself. So it, I think every yeah, gesture. I'm just reading. I'm just in the middle of reading the uh, the anthology of his essays, actually, and I read that exact quote. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Is it good that I haven't read that anthology? It's fucking awesome, man. Is it? it? Really is. Oh, great. It's okay. so good. Yeah. I should get it. Um, I didn't know there was one in quite that form. Great. I'll, I'll check that out. I think. I think so. I think everything's political, and I think particularly, um, particularly from the fact that I'm. You know, I'm an able-bodied, heterosexual, middle-aged white man. You know, well-off country. You know, the amount of opportunities that I've had that other people don't have. You know, to the point where music's not even part of sort of formal or strong part of the national curriculum anymore. So that people aren't even getting taught music at school. Um. So I, so I think that everything that I, and with that comes a certain set of responsibilities. I. I think so. I, I think all my everything I do, I take quite seriously. Probably too seriously. I think a few people would contend, but it's how it's how I'm built. So I, I I sort of find it hard to sort of resist that impulse to take it seriously. But um, but I think that music doesn't just appear out of the air even though it's invisible i don't think it just comes out of the air um i think music comes out of radio stations which you've chosen to listen to it's you've heard it at a particular time of the day or or somebody's played you a piece of music or you've heard it on an advert or you've heard it in the background of a tv show or you've been to a concert or you've been to a festival and stumbled across a band you know i don't i don't think music just exists in this sort of vaporous cloud and that the audience is somehow um has to try and decipher meaning from it that the the original author intended and i don't see that as a kind of uh a drain pipe or a pipe between the two positions you know the first thing i think that's really important to say is i don't think there's just one listener as well you know i don't think there's a list i don't know who the listener is so for example you and i have talked for an hour and 21 minutes so far so the next time you hear a bit of my music you'll have a completely different relationship to to maybe if you just heard the same piece of music yesterday um which one of those positions is right you know i'm doing a concert at the barbican on saturday with a horse skeleton and my sons my kids are going to be there they're going to they're going to look at it completely differently to a music journalist that might be there, or there's going to be somebody that likes riding horses who's who grew up with horses. They're going to have a completely different relationship. So I don't, 
fundamentally don't accept that there's one listener. I think everybody has a, has a whole series of um, positions, social, political, cultural, historical positions that they're bringing to any, any sort of listening experience and, and that those two in, interact. But I also think too that music has titles, you know, so I can call a piece of music something and that people have to talk about it. You know, if I, um, <clears throat> if I call my next piece of music, 50% of UK musicians earn less than 10 grand a year. That's what it would have to be called. And that's, yeah. that fact would propagate through and people would, even if it might be an instrumental piece of music, somebody would, would, would hear that. Um, I also think that there's artwork that it comes in. And if you're seeing it live, there's the, the clothes that someone's wearing or, or the, um, the staging or the visuals or what have you. So I, for me, it's a whole series of kind of possibilities to interact with meaning and with somebody that might experience the music at some stage. So it's, it's a very long way, winded way of saying um, lots of different ways. There's lots of different ways to, to sort of engage politically with instrumental music. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I sort of, think about all of those different bits. Um, but I also, mm. I also think about like, what's the effect? I think that's a really important question. You know, what's, what political effect are you after? You know, so um, what's the political effect of you reading an article about climate change? What changes, you know, does the world get slightly cooler because you've read that article? Not, not necessarily <laughs> and might have gone up because that's that articles had to be stored on a hard drive in a in a desert somewhere um or underwater keeping cool um so so what's the what what's what's the political effect and some of the things that i'm really interested in as well is is the moment of clarity or realization so for example it might be that you listen to a piece of my music. So there's a piece called Moving Like a Train on a record I did called Scale. And it's all about, the track's all about death. And um, there's a, a thing that at the beginning, there's a sound at the beginning that sounds a bit like a, uh, like a car starting or something, but it's actually a, coffin being closed from the inside so it's, it's what it would be sounded like if you were buried alive about to be buried alive not a sound i should imagine anybody in the audience has heard um but it's not a particularly good example but but that the point at which you discover that might be many years later and that might be the point of political inflection or that might be the moment of change like oh shit i've got to completely change how i think about that piece of music or that work or that thing or that noise or whatever it might be. So I think I'm in, I'm also interested in people not knowing as well. And then at the moment at which you reveal that it's knowing in order to try and create pr political friction or ultimately to, pr to create change, you know? Um, and I, I think fundamentally all of this comes down to the fact that the thing that's killing us is the status quo. 
you know, Naomi Klein says, the only thing we've got to do, you've probably read this in the interview but I said, but the only thing we've got to do to destroy ourselves is carry on the way that we're going, you know, the status quo. Yeah, which, um, which Naomi Klein book is that from? That's from This Changes oh, Everything. Yeah. So, so what I'm trying to do really is just every time you try and create something is to undermine the state or challenge the status quo a little bit or to do it differently a little bit to how you've done it before or to not leave the status quo untouched or unharmed, even if it's in tiny ways. Some, sometimes it might be bigger, like with a pig record or a horse skeleton and others, it might, like in a bit of dance music, it might be that the track's in 5-4 rather than 4-4 four, four, or it's... Um, or it's made with some used um, sh- artillery shells that I bought on eBay from that were used in the Iraq War or something, you know. Mm. So, mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's tricky. I wrote a whole my PhD is all about that in a way, um, about ways of listening um, and determining political meaning. So I, I should probably stop there, otherwise I'll still be here next week. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Just to return to the original quote, I mean, do you think it's possible to change the world just from making music? Um, I do. I do. I have to. Otherwise, I would, I, I'd stop. But, you know, I'd, whilst I was making the, the big band record, um, there's me and there's you, the one before the Brexit one, I tried to record in the Houses of Parliament and they thought about it for a year and then they said no because they said I'd bring the house into disrepute. Um, even though I, really? yeah, even though it was a bit of instrumental music, I just said, can I just record the corridors of power? You know, can I record footsteps down? I just make some sounds. I don't want people. I just want the building. And they said, who, who makes that decision? The members do. So the Houses of Parliament is run like a cooperative. So all the members of Parliament, they all sit on committees and they handle all of those requests. Um, everything from, um, you know, the structural integrity of the building to PR to whatever. It's all dealt with by the members. Right, so there's like a select committee for yeah. house matters. Yeah, exactly. For, and um, I can't remember which committee it's called, but yeah, it's a committee. And they thought about it and talked about it and then said no. And, and I, I was really annoyed. But then I snuck in and did it anyway. But, but, <laughs> right. but, um, but they... That was my government telling me that they were worried about a piece of music and a bit of instrumental music. They were worried that a bit of instrumental music could damage the reputation of the houses of house. You know, I mean that's a huge endorsement, isn't it? It's a huge endorsement. <laughs> it's really shocking. It's one of the best moments in a way of my life because it was like the government saying, "Actually, we're worried about what you might do with music." Shit, you're doing something of substance. Right? Yeah. The idea was challenging to them and it's mad, you know, you wouldn't, if you asked, you know, if you asked anybody making music, most people, if you said to them, do you think you're, do you think the government would be worried by your, by your music, um, your instrumental music? I think most people would say no. I mean, of course, you know, if I was writing drill music or what have you, the government's incredibly concerned because, you well, the know. police certainly are. Yeah, well, they're locking people up and they're making rappers send their lyrics before they, you know, for, before they can release records and things like that. So, 
criminalizing certain voices, you know, in the community. It's absolutely disgusting. But, you know, for an instrumental piece of music, for the government to be worried about instrumental music, I was like, okay, great. Well, if they're worried about it, I need to try harder then, you know? I need to... Um, I'm still trying to work out what the best response to that is or what to do with that, you know? But it's a really... It's exciting, the, the idea that, the, that the, literally the people in power are worried, you know? That's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. So you, you mentioned... Well, when you were describing your, well, it wasn't quite this, but <laughs> when you were describing your political utopia, probably not in quite those terms, but um, you mentioned the importance of dissent and the acceptance of dissent, as long as it's respectful. Do you think that the debate in the arts and the kind of commentary and the, the, the messages people send out, do you think it's, there's a danger of it being a bit monocultural and that dissent really isn't tolerated? Um, it's it's really hard to answer that question. I, I, it's really hard to sort of like get without sort of you sort of suddenly find yourself in like free speech territory and and cancel <laughs> yeah. culture and all that kind of stuff. And I lots of these terms have become loaded. I realise. Yeah, yes, but have a go. Yeah, I think it. You know, I think my primary focus for the. Brexit record was I actually don't accept the terms of the debate you know I don't accept it you know mm. I don't I don't accept that um, I don't accept that the cause of our problems is Europe I don't accept the cause I, I don't accept that Europe is the biggest problem that this country faces I don't believe that um, Europe is making people's lives, majority of people's lives worse and so on. And I don't accept, you know, a binary referendum, a yes or no, you know. So, and, you know, the same thing around, I think the same thing around is happening around trans, the discussion about trans stuff just getting really in, insane in this country. And it's like, I don't accept the terms of the, the debate, you know. I don't accept that women's rights are um I don't, I don't accept that you cannot um support women and support trans people at the same time you know that's an, that's an insane kind of right wing construction to create separation and to create difference and to create hatred and to create division and so i think that um i i think that uh the idea of dissent is has become really um, turbocharged by the right wing by the right wing as a way to try and delegitimize Black Lives Matter and their central their central request, or to delegitimize the environmental movement, or to 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 take the sting out of movements is by policing. Um, by ironically policing what people can and can't say, for example, by banning books, you know, um, or trying to stop the National Trust talk about links to slavery and things like that. So I think we have to be really careful when we talk about dissent today because it's been, um, because there's a lot of right-wing money flowing into 
parties, structures, organized sort of secret organizations to try and um, protect the status quo at all costs. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think the important caveat that you already made was respectful dissent, right? Yeah. Although you know, although we have to be a little bit careful that we're not that we're not. Um, you know, change comes from demands as well, right? So I have to be careful that I'm, that I'm not, you know, like the right to vote or the right for, yeah, I have to be careful that I'm not kind of setting boundaries about how to demand change. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the terms, you know, the idea of the, the terms of the debate being false really rings true. I mean, that's what, really frustrates me about the whole thing and it's just kind of there's a sense of the the whole thing being uh just just being conducted in bad faith basically from top to bottom and that's i think extremely toxic on the exchange of ideas i think as much as anything else you know because i think you know the, the way you move forward is through dialogue and you're absolutely right to say that the dialogue has been intentionally poisoned in some instances in some respects and you can you know it, it's it's very visible but i think i think there's a danger in kind of throwing up your hands and saying well we can't discuss anything because it's all gone to shit i think that's a that's that's a that's a tricky position too you know so let me ask you about hmm, hang on i made more notes for this for this episode than i've ever made before and it all, like the more notes the more notes I have, the the more trouble I have in framing questions. So, in fact, yeah, let me ask you about the let me ask you the AI questions then to to finish up. How do you feel about your work being used to train large language models and the like? Um, I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, I feel bad, but it's also you know. Um, interesting conversation with a friend of mine who's senior in AI in Google. And he, he was saying that actually you're my, because my music doesn't really exist in what's called the latent space. So the latent space is um, work that's easily digestible. So for example, if I was Gilbert and George or mm. I was the pet shop boys, um, I don't know why I've chosen two white middle-aged, Amen for both my examples, but um, <laughs> that's fine. But um, nothing against them, particularly, or as individuals or collectively. But there's a style there potentially that could be um, ingested and then recreated relatively straightforwardly. But I think you would, if you put in my horse record and you put in my dance music and you put in my films and my film music or some of the or some of the guitar stuff that I've produced or I think it would struggle to try and find a thing. So he was saying I because I might I don't think I'm gonna do it so I can talk about it, but one of my records that I wanted to do was to make a record out of a traffic jam and um and try and sort of make it with the people in the cars and try and work out where they were going and what they were doing and so on and so forth. And he said an AI wouldn't be able to make a record, wouldn't think about making a record out of a traffic jam or work out exactly how to go about doing it. And 
And so in a way, it's a creativity question. It's like the more, um, the more human you are, in a way, then the less risk potentially there is of, or the more out there, you know, he's like, your ideas are going to be, you know, your music has a chance of going and being the mainstream because they're, everything else will just be, um, yeah, everything else will just be generative, you know. I mean, certainly if I was sure. making, writing sort of pretty piano music that could be heard in the background of restaurants, I'd be extremely worried right now because I think that, right. that sure. I think that'll all be a you know if I was making bland tech house, um, I think I'd be quite worried right now, you know. Um, and so I think, in a way, the challenge is there to try and make mu- make work that doesn't fit somehow, um, and that is outside of the latent space or is outside of the status quo somehow. So in some ways, it's like an exciting challenge, I think. Um, so how about then using AI creatively? Like, is, is AI or the coming AI revolution, um, in large quotation marks, could that be comparable to the sampling revolution, do you think? Yeah, 100%. I think it's, it's extremely exciting and it will... We have no idea how it's going to revolutionize. I mean, it's a bit like Graham Alexander Bell inventing the telephone and and not realizing that someone eventually will invent the fax machine where you can feed bits of paper into his telephone and it will appear the other end. I mean, there's no way that he could really know that, I don't think, at that point. Or or that or that somebody on one of his things could watch the Teletubbies on, on the thing that he's just made, you know, sent by the, the thing. I think it would just be too. And I think AI is the same thing. You know, I had a friend who is a teacher and she said AI has the potential to revolutionize the classroom. For example, you know, if she's teaching a book to a classroom, every, of wide range abilities there might be someone um there might be someone autistic there might be someone with adhd there might be somebody whose reading age is very advanced there might be somebody whose english is not necessarily their first language an ai could produce of on the spot planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Could produce a version of that book for everybody in the room, and they could all be reading the same book and talking about the same thing, but all through different... Um, but they've all got different versions to each other. And so that just, which sounds exciting to me. Um, and so I think, again, it's just, it's our only limits the, uh, is the human imagination, right? That's the, and that's the scary thing is, is that, uh, you know, because then you're faced with, oh, crikey, then where are my limits? And then you realize, oh, you're there. So I think AI is really exciting. And I think, I think the way that it's ingesting all the music and churning stuff out is is scary and upsetting and exploitative. Um, but I think there's a separate aspect to it that's really exciting and and has the potential to create vast amounts of fascinating musical data that we can then use to create new works that will we have no concept of how they're going to be right now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So I think we found a, a positive note to end on, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a, uh, that was good. Let me ask you one more thing though, before we finish. Sure. What in your view, like between sampling and AI, what was the most important development in music tech, in your opinion? Um, I, I think sample, because Be- between between sampling in in the in the period between, oh, the gap sampling between. and AI oh I see okay. yeah exactly yeah um, 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 um I would say the most important thing and it's and I don't think is talked about half enough but I think is about the creativity and imagination of um Japanese musical instrument designers right so the actual people that made the 808, that made the 909, that made the 303, that made the SP1200, that made the um, EMU, that made, you know, um, the, that made the Akai S612 or the S900, you know, but particularly the, particularly the ones that made instruments, like that, that built the drum machines, that built the 808. I don't think those Japanese engineers get half as much love and respect as they deserve and that it should get considering that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I couldn't name a single one of them. It's funny because the, um, like the, like the Japanese game designers of that period really do get a lot of love and are kind of lionized, but I couldn't, I couldn't name you a single Japanese instrument designer. Yeah. Sad, isn't it? When you think about, when you think about the impact that they've had, like my entire career, everything that I've been doing for the last 35 years, would have wouldn't have happened without without them, you know. And it's, yeah. an, and it's an extraordinarily um, generous and brilliant thing that they've done. It's a relatively small group of people as well, you know. Mm. Um, like the guy that that ran Roland during that period that died recently, whose name I've forgotten. But 
Um, but yeah, visionaries, absolute visionaries, and and real tangible cultural impact that that goes way beyond what may have been expected at the time. And they sound incredible as well. They still do. They absolutely still do. Yeah. They don't sound like anything else, even now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Matthew, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for your time. Thanks for asking me. Nice to chat. Yeah, that was Matthew Herbert. What an interesting person. He's, as I said at the top, just done so much different stuff in music and so much stuff which is basically unique, you know? I think there's a danger when you do stuff which is conceptual to the degree that he does occasionally, not with everything, but there is a danger with, you know, when you're making a album out of a horse skeleton that it could become gimmicky, but I never get that impression about his work. There always seems to be a point to it. And it's not just a, you know, look at me, I can do this stuff. There's definite artistic merit in what he's doing at all times, I think. And it was just great to get his take on so many of those issues. It was really interesting to be able to hear him just talk about that kind of stuff, really. And yeah, just the kind of conversation, you know this by now, the kind of conversation that I like having on the show. This was a textbook episode. In fact, absolutely loved it. And I hope you enjoyed it too. Okay, we're done. A reminder that you can support the show directly scubaofficial.io slash support either on Patreon or just by flinging us over a little bit of change via one of the options that you'll find on that web link that would be really nice of you we have production costs and marketing plans that need funding so if you want more episodes better guests not better guests you know what I mean we have great guests we can't improve the standard of our guests maybe we could have some more high profile guests that's a slightly different thing. Anyway, money is required for these things. So if you find it in the kindness of your heart, then that's the place to do it. Scubaofficial.io slash support. If you're not going to do that, then that's completely fine. Totally understand. Follow the show wherever you're listening to this. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the follow button. Hit the five-star button on the ratings. Leave a gushing review telling everyone how great we are. That'd be nice. And... You can also follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. There's also links to the support stuff as well. So if you just go to the show notes, all the important stuff is there. And thanks for listening. I'll check you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not Diving Podcast. Thank you. Let's go, cool, wow.